Podcast world, we're back. I hope you all just were engulfed with information through that entire Wildfowl Magazine 2021 giant gear issue. 11 freaking episodes. 11 episodes we just laid down with Wildfowl Magazine. Thank you to my co-host Skip Knowles, editor-in-chief of Wildfowl Magazine. I was excited about it. We were getting a ton of comments about it. And what people are really seeing and, um, and, and, and putting into our DMs and our info at thefowllife.com is that they want more instruction. They want to learn more. And a lot of times in this life, when you get to a certain level of something, and I'm going to refer to my guest today. Um, you know, we have Pete Fisher back on the podcast today with Dog Show, and we have the one and only Brad Arrington from Mossy Pond Retrievers back on for probably the dozenth time, maybe tenth time, twelfth time in the last two years. Um, when you get to a level that Brad's got to or Pete's got to, sometimes, and they can answer themselves, but we take it for granted all the knowledge that we get on a daily basis, just me being in Georgia and standing around Brad and Lee and Clark and and the whole crew down there at Mossy Pond, I'm just being just like a sponge. And I think that myself and maybe Pete, and I don't want to speak out of turn and maybe Brad, we take it for granted that people want to learn people. Not everybody knows everything that Brad Arrington knows about dog training. And that's likely, right? The guy's been doing it since he was 15 years old and he's built an unbelievable brand. And Pete's been training dogs and labs and sporting dogs for, I think over 35 years. He can correct me if I'm wrong, but imagine the amount of intelligence and expertise and knowledge that these people have. So I really wanted to start off the podcast today by talking about, we want to bring you more instruction. We want you to be the best you can be because for sure, Brad doesn't want you to take home a dog from Mossy Pond and not understand how to use a collar or how to transport that dog or how to hydrate that dog. There's a lot that goes in to a living dog, a sporting dog. And I'm talking like Axel. I can't wait to get Axel back. And when I think about getting him back, I just think about all of the memories and stories that are going to be written and created in the next couple months of the 2021-22 duck and goose season. So without further ado, today's episode of the Foul Eye Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Gerber Gear, of course, Stay Sharp America. Thank you, Gerber Gear, for believing in the culture that we believe in, living off the land. We hone our skill set. We call ducks in tight. We shoot them ethically over the decoys. Our dog runs out gets them, comes back with a mouthful of feathers and breast meat. We skin them. We pluck them. We do so many different recipes. We put them on a trailer and we serve that bounty to our family and friends living off the land, being a provider. Thank you, Gerber Gear. Stay sharp, America. Today's episode of the Foul Eye Podcast is also brought to you by the one and only Doctra Training Collars. What does it mean to have a training collar for your dog? It's ethical. It's the only way to train a dog. The only reason I say that is because the experts say that, and I believe the science. I like to believe in science. I do not make decisions based on emotion. At one time in my life, I did that a lot. Sometimes I still do, but I don't want to make decisions based on emotion. So today's episode, we have Pete Fisher with the Dogtra brand. He also rep- represents Yukonuba Dog Food. We have Brad Arrington. He represents Mossy Pond. He's the owner and founder 
of Mossy Pond Retrievers and Mossy Pond Outfitters, which we got big news coming out of Georgia soon with Mossy Pond Outfitters. But he also represents the Dogtra brand and Yukonuba Dog Food. So I know I'm rambling, but I'm so excited today because I was laying in bed this morning at four o'clock and Brad wasn't out of bed yet at seven o'clock Eastern yet. And I'm like, get up, Brad, get up, Brad. I kept sending him text and, and Pete was having coffee on his deck. But here's what we're going to do today. First of all, welcome, Mr. Pete. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me once again. Appreciate it. Pete, you're wearing an orange hat. Is it safe to say that you're going to go get on a rooster this afternoon or something? What's going on with the orange hat? <laughs> uh, we're getting there pretty close. Um, you know, the shooting preserve seasons can run 12 months out of the year. And <clears throat> my old business is actually a licensed shooting preserve. And I own much of the property around that business yet. So there's out, uh, what we call scratch birds. So those are uh, released birds that um, haven't been harvested by the by the members that are uh, hunting them. And so there's always some scratch birds around. So uh, we're getting close. I haven't done any hunting yet. And then our uh, native bird season uh, does take a while before they open up up here. Is one of your favorite things to hear. Do you like the sound of a duck call or the sound of rooster? What do you like more, Pete? <laughs> well, you know, I've got to say uh, in this day and age, Chad, uh, I do more pheasant hunting because the, the ducks are just non-existent up in central Minnesota. And we are in the middle of uh, probably one of the biggest droughts that, that we've ever had in my memory. And so we don't have any water other than the big, you know, lake water, but all of our ponds have dried up around here. We haven't had any rain. So uh, the ducks in our area have kind of gone the route of the passenger pigeon. They're, they're long gone and um, they had been declining anyway. But now this really uh, made them, they just don't have anywhere, any ponds at all. So, well, here's, a, here's, here's some good news, Pete. Here's, here's how my boy Drake White would say this. The optimistic man would say, we got a solution for you, Pete. And Brad is going to give you more details soon. I'll give you more details soon. And I've already talked to the folks at Dogtra about coming down to Georgia and experiencing what Brad and Ellen and the crew have built down there and that we're so humbly proud to be a part of at Mossy Pond Outfitters. Um, Pete, I'm telling you, when it comes to what you just mentioned, a dog lover, a connoisseur of fine dog work, a sporting dog aficionado, when you see what Brad Arrington and the, and the crew at Mossy Pond have laid down with the outfitting program, you already mentioned part of it with plantation style hunting and, and, and some of the kickbird stuff in, in places that you can go in South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota. Um, plantations for quail in Georgia, how, how, how quail are being preserved and grown down there. Um, what Brad is doing with his upland program, but Pete, I'm telling you the mallard ducks are going to blow your mind. The most realistic flooded timber ducks working decoys you you can hunt them all the way through the middle of march a legal limit a one man limit a day per man pete you ought to see these ducks work you ought to but i want you to keep in mind we we want to start spreading a message and i want brad to talk on this today that plantation style hunting these ducks are being raised like a pheasant wood or a quail wood or a chucker wood at a, at a shooting plantation. Or I've been all over the, the nicest gun clubs in South Dakota and, and seen the operations and how they, how they 
entertain, how they have camaraderie, how they have team building, and how these these operations provide something to a hunter that I never thought of until I visited with Brad in late March of 2021 while I was down in South Georgia around Patterson. And he educated me on, you go to Arkansas, Pete. And you spend four days in Arkansas and you get two days of clouds, you're not going to kill them in the timber. If you get the wrong weather or the wrong migration or the wrong temperature, you might not go down there. You might get one good, really, really good day out of four. That's a good time in Arkansas these days. It might be because the migration is halted up north because of corn production. It might be there's so much open water in the river systems or the refuges. It might be because the, the migration is shifted a little bit westward. But for some reason, Pete Fisher, you just mentioned that the ducks in your part of Minnesota are almost quote unquote non-existent. So here we have a, a situation to where Brad has the solution to a problem. Okay. You can go down there with your dogs, Pete, with six, seven, eight, ten of your buddies, kill your legal limit of five to six mallards a day. How many retrieves is that, Pete? What it, Pete, you're way better at math than I am. What's six times ten? <laughs> Pete, that's sixty. That's sixty retrieves that your dog can get when he got four in Arkansas. Think about yeah. that, of what that means to that dog and the owner of that dog, the handler of that dog that has invested so much time and love and passion. Brad, talk to me. Am I preaching to the choir that how important this style of hunting is for the avid dog owner? It's, it's the best. You know, everybody accepted the the quail. You know, we, we would turn out the pin-release quail, the um, pin-raised um, pheasant, but it's like nobody would accept like the duck hunters was a different breed. They didn't want to accept the plantation ducks. And, you know, there, there's a lot of places that have the driven ducks where you throw them out of a tower or push them off of a hill. And probably 10 years ago, when I had customers that came in, I would be instructing them how to use the e-collar, how, how to um, correct their dog, how, how to um, do different hunting scenarios. But I wanted to simulate a duck hunt the best I could. And it took me about 10 years to figure out how to have, have these ducks where they would feed in one place and roost in another, just like the wild duck does. And we could go out in boats and getting pit blinds, getting skid blinds, getting the timber um, with these dogs. The, the guys and the dogs would not see where these ducks roosted and the ducks would after daylight would fly over, would decoy, would um, would um, would come in, and we could shoot them and kill them and get our limit. And after about ten years, we've we've finally capitalized on that scenario. And just like the pin released quail and all the quail plantations down here in South Georgia and across the South, um, that you can simulate a quail hunt almost exactly like we used to shoot quail thirty years ago down here. Um, we have a we have a little piece of heaven right here in South Georgia that you can shoot a shoot a duck, and I promise you the best of the best duck hunters in the country come right here to get their dogs trained. And when I take them out there, they just start smiling because they say they, they can't believe that it looks so real. And um, the, the dogs, the, the guys, I mean, there's a lot of people that come in that aren't experts that are learning how to blow a duck call, and I'm teaching them how to use the – dog collar we get back to the lodge and they could swear they said brad that those are definitely wild birds right i just killed my lemon of mallards greenheads 
in South Georgia. And they're, they're definitely pen release birds that we grow right here. But the way we feed train them, and it starts in, um, you know, it starts in the 1st of July. We raise them right here on the property and we teach these ducks how to roost in a spot and um, feed in a spot. And we have 1,100 acres. They fly over a mile each day to these two spots. And it is as real as real can be. We, we take the customers out in boats. So when I get that customer in, we start in the yard and I show them how to use the e-collar, show them how to correct the dog, keep a good attitude, um, keep his tail wagging, but at the same time have that great obedience. And then we work up. Then we put him in, in a boat out there on dry land and we, we teach him how to Tell him to place up there in the front of the boat where he won't be walking by all his buddies and knocking stuff over. And then we ease into going out there in the in the ranger and loading up in that gunner kennel, taking them to the um, duck blind, the dog getting out, getting in the boat, going through the swamp and getting in that timber, getting up there on that place board and then shooting ducks exactly like you would shoot in Arkansas timber. And after that, I can assure that my brand and Dalter's brand and all the other brands that we represent are um, our product that we're providing is is true and is going to look good when they go to Arkansas. And if you think about that, Pete, before you respond to what Brad just said, um, it's been being done for years with ducks as well, Pete. I mean, there's operations in Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, East Texas that they let them out and they fly straight at you in a straight line, almost like a Clydesdale with blinders on. That's not realistic for ducks. But Mr. Pete Fisher, these ducks are coming over this flooded timber. If you look at some pictures that I'm going to have Brad or myself text to you today, it looks like you're standing 15 miles east or north or south or west of Stuttgart, Arkansas, the mallard duck capital of the world. Pete, there's not a lot of natural mallard ducks in the state of Georgia, if any. There's a bunch of wood ducks, and there's some Canada geese in October, and there's some diver ducks. Don't get me wrong. The further you come west into Alabama, maybe, you start to get into some puddle duck territory. Then you get into the Delta and then into the, the, the you know, the – the entire Grand Prairie of Arkansas in that I-40 corridor, Memphis, and that part of Tennessee. Then you get into Mallard country. But, Pete, this is South Georgia. It's February 28th. Super Bowl's over. You're done. You're, 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 you're done watching the Super Bowl. Regular duck season is out with the federal government only allowing it until the end of January. You and your buddies get in your truck and your dog trailer's attached to the back, and bam, you're down at Mossy Pond in an unbelievable lodge. I'm talking – just great accommodations. Then you get to eat the meals. And I don't know if you've ever slapped your mama, Pete, but this food will make you do so. And then on top of that, Pete, you get to go out and kill a limit of greenheads in February up to March 15th and have your dog retrieve every one of them. And not just running on dry ground, Pete. This is stumps. This is swimming. This is jumping out of blinds and dog platforms and riding in boats. This is the real deal. So what I'm trying to say, Pete, is like, if there's ever been a no-brainer in duck hunting and dog ownership and dog handling, Mossy Pond Outfitters has got the cure for it right now. This is a no-brainer for somebody that just told us what you did because there's only so many times, Pete, 
that you can hear a snow goose call go off in your head because that gets annoying. And there's only a couple times that you want to hear rooster because it scares the piss out of me when somebody screams it. I'm never, ever ready for it, Pete. This is mallard duck hunting at its finest. And I want you to start thinking about that, Pete, to come down because I don't want you to get down, Pete. I don't want you to get duck depression, buddy. I want you to stay up. If you need small group (laughs) communication, Brad and I are here for you. Okay, Pete? Well, well, that's interesting, and it's great to hear. Um, you know, one of the things I run into up here in, in the Midwest, and particularly Minnesota, because of the lack of, of waterfall opportunities, you guys, is that, you know, you got individuals that are training their dogs all year long. Uh, a fair amount of them, uh, Brad, you know this, they participate in the hunt test game, and they're out there training and running hunt tests and, and some, some entry-level field trials, and quite honestly, Many of these retrievers nowadays are training, are retrieving most of their birds, doing most of their work in training and in uh, and in hunt tests or competitions. And when it comes to the actual uh, hunting, these dogs get very few opportunities nowadays. And and so unless you go somewhere, uh, you just don't have that many opportunities. These dogs are retrieving more uh pen raise birds in training and in hunt tests than they are in the, in the wild. And so we're seeing that with, we've seen that with pheasants over the years, you know, uh, you get some bad, bad winters up here, some wet springs, you know, that'll your pheasant population can de- decline just right, right before your eyes uh, because the pheasant does not migrate uh, like, like a duck does. And so we've seen that with the, in the pheasant hunting world in South Dakota, you go to most of these lodges uh, Chad and they're they're pen raised birds. Uh, they've they've you know they're raise and release. Um, they're they're paid to hunt. There are opportunities out there of native bird hunting we call it, but it's far and few between is what we're finding. So that's very encouraging to hear what Brad's doing down there. Um, I was not aware that he was doing that type of uh, plantation duck hunting. And I'll let Brad talk. Um... I'll let Brad talk on it a little bit more, but the one, the point I wanted to get across Pete is that sometimes you just have to accept the fact that things are changing. You've just said so much in the last 10 minutes and I've said more cause I talk too much, but things are changing. Pete times are changing. The everything changes evolution. Um, I just want to make sure that people understand that, your dog doesn't know that his tail's up. If you got an English pointer or you have a Vizsla and his tail's up and his right foot's up and his nose is down and the other Vizsla's standing there respecting his point and honoring his point, they don't know that that, that pheasant was taken out of a, a pin that morning. They don't know that. Your shotgun doesn't know that when it's on your shoulder and swinging and your eyes are open and you're, and you're, and you're making the perfect shot. I want people to start thinking about your dog doesn't know that your shotgun doesn't know that your federal black cloud or your, or your prairie storm doesn't know it when it takes that pheasant down ethically and kills it dead. I'm talking about memory stories and getting work done because we're spending a lot of money to be a duck and a goose hunter. And of course we understand camaraderie and that it's not all about the trigger pulling the keel, but There's only so many times your dog's going to look at you and say, what the hell, Pete? What are we doing here? I want to go for a swim and I want some feathers in my mouth. So I want people to start thinking about the dog. And that's what Brad and Ellen and Lee and Clark and everybody's educated me on at Mossy Pond is that this is about the dog. And at the same time, 
you're having a blast. And at the end of your two or three day hunt, whatever you choose, whatever package you choose with Brad and Mossy Pond, you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? Those ducks were back flapping and fluttering over our greenhead gear decoys. And then you turn on the mud motor and you got your gator tail and you're running through the trees. I mean, it is so realistic, Pete. You can tell how fired up I am about it. I got goosebumps right now, no pun intended, but I am literally so excited about this operation because I never imagined in a million years I'd be killing mallard ducks in February and March. I know I'd get a rosy bill if I waited till May or July and went down to Argentina, but that's a 10 hour flight just from Atlanta. I'm talking, this is in the continental United States and it is going to be awesome. So this is what we're going to do today, guys. We're going to picture ourselves in this hunt situation. Okay. It opens in October. Let's not forget this just is February and March, Brad Arrington. This is October through March to where you can get your mallards, your quail, your chucker, your pheasants. And on top of that, Pete, check this out. What if you want to go kill a wild hog at night, Pete? What if you want to go rifle a wild hog or do it in a different uh, ethical way of harvesting a wild hog for some bacon? Pete, get this 100% success rate on wild hogs. Also, if you want to go down there during deer season, that's not they're not they're wild deer but brad can take care of you wild turkey season for a big georgia eastern in the georgia pine you've heard jamie johnson sing about the georgia pine in macon killing a turkey down there this year was unbelievable for me so this is going to be an awesome opportunity so today i want to picture we're hunting pete we're with brad brad we're hunting we're with pete and we have this little thing right here can everybody can you guys see that okay this is the 1900S Dogtra. This is the new black edition. I don't know if you guys have seen this packaging, but it's absolutely beautiful. We have 30 minutes. You guys are on a stage. It's a tutorial on the 1900S Dogtra because I started this off, Brad Arrington and Pete Fisher, by talking about education and how sometimes we take it for granted. And Brad, you're looking at me like, are you nuts, Chad? That thing, a, a freaking monkey could operate that thing because you've done it so much, Brad. You could do this with, in your sleep. But this is a big deal. And what I mean by big deal, Brad and Pete, is that there's a lot of questioning about what I'm holding right here. That can't be argued. There's a lot of questions about, is it ethical? Is it right? Why do you use it? What, what, what's the last, re, what's the last re resource that we're going to take to make sure this dog is taken care of? I want you guys to talk to our audience and myself today on how to use the 1900S training collar from Dogtra. It's simple. It's two pieces. It also comes with a charging port, but look at that. You got the collar and you got the remote. Brad, you're smiling again because I know you think that, what is he doing? This is the easiest thing in the world. But Brad, it, this can be intimidating. Pete, you answer that first. Can this be intimidating when somebody goes for the first time to start using a training collar? Can the, the can intimidation set in? Oh, for sure. And uh, and that's not a bad thing either. And I think Brad would agree with that. You know, it's a powerful device. You know, it doesn't. Uh, one of the things that I tell people all the time is that, you know, in using the e-collar, if you're going to use it for correction, control of your dog, it really doesn't take a hell of a lot of effort on on the uh, on the trainer's part. All you got to do is be able to roll the stimulation dial up and down and then tap buttons. So it is a powerful tool, and it's like anything else that we use in, in our training our dog. It, it's, if used appropriately, it's, uh, it's a great tool. And, you know, one of the things I think we, Brad and I should touch on today is, you know, the remote training caller is, is intimidating, but you get, in, you get some trainers, uh, professional, in all different walks of life that 
start telling you about how to use the remote training collar. And they make it sound like it's, it's uh, uh, you know, like splitting the atom in order to, to, uh, to use this. And really, it's, it's just a tool we use to reinforce commands at a distance. It's negative reinforcement. Brad's going to agree with this. We train a dog. First, we teach him the command through negative and positive reinforcement. And the training collar gives us that opportunity to condition the dog and then reinforce those commands at a, at a distance. And after that, it's just a heck of a lot of repetition. So it, it, it isn't as complicated as what you might think. Brad and I have used uh, these units so much over the years that I, I like to tell people, for me, it's like putting a, a spoon in my mouth. It's just very natural. I'm not intimidated by it whatsoever. But part of my job, if I'm working with somebody or trying to promote the dog to brand, and whether that be a, a, an amateur trainer or professional, Chad, is that I've got to make them comfortable. I've got to show them how easy this is to use, but I also got to show them the appropriate way to use it. So, yeah, it, it's very intimidating. But when it's used the right way and once you get comfortable with it, it's the best tool you're ever going to have for training a dog. Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, Brad, I want you to start off the tutorial with you were you were smiling a lot. And I know that you are very good at what you do. I get it. So in your most normal voice, if you can cut out the accent a little bit, can you just talk to us a little bit about the 1900S? Because you yourself texted me less than two weeks ago, Brad Arrington, and told me because I was getting ready to make my order with Dogtra. And I said, what do I want? You know what I do. You've been on the road with us enough. You said this is the one you want. So talk to me, Brad, about first-time user. I get that box on my porch, or I get it at my nearest retailer, and I and I get it out. Do we start with the remote, Brad? Do we start with this? What is? Can you train me on this, Brad, this training caller, the 1900S Dogtra? Uh, Mr. Pete, I don't know if he agrees or disagrees with me on the, on the model. Dogtra has a lot of great models, um, a lot of models that – I use um, I, I use probably four or five of them, um, different ones, depending on what I'm working on. But we do, just like you said, we have 20 to 30 boxes of 1900 S sitting in our pro shop. And every customer that comes in or goes out of our, um, of our business is, um, takes a 1900 S home. And when they, when they come, the, only thing that I tell them that is mandatory by getting a dog trained with us is that at the end of the program, they will spend two to three days on the grounds, in the yard, doing yard work, all the way out into the field, learning how to train, correct, and work this e-collar to help them um, to make my product the best it can be. You know, years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I was having a little bit of an issue. I'd send dogs home and I would do some follow-ups and the dogs weren't doing as good as I had wished for. And what I found out, um, I wasn't spending enough time teaching the owner. And the more that I have taught the owner, and that's what led us into this hunting operation, Mossy Pond Outfitters, but the more I teach that owner, the better my product is. And that goes back to this 1900S, this collar, or any of the dog trick collars. If I teach that customer how to use that collar perfectly, I mean, 
my brand is covered. It's fail-proof. And I have, I have several customers that come in that are uh, intimidated, scared by it, and want to say, you know what, Brad, I'm sorry. I want my dog trained, but I just, I just want to try it without it. And sure enough, two to three weeks later, they're calling me, hey, my dog started breaking. I can't stop him. What do I do? Um, he gets out there, gets real birdie at um, 100 yards, and I call him on here, and he won't come back immediately. I said, spend an hour with me. Let me teach you. Let me give you a lesson on the car like I advised you in the beginning. I give them a lesson. They take it home, and within two days, they come and they say, everything's perfect. And it, it is fail-proof if you do it this way. Um, if, if the owner comes in, gives him 1900 s spends a day or two with me learning how to operate it, you have a happy dog. <clears throat> you know, the only other ways to discipline a dog if he doesn't come back or he, or he breaks is with your hands or with a, a healing stick or with some training aid that makes you move rapidly, makes you... Um, make intimidating motions and when you make those intimidating motions that's when you're going to get that dog with the tuck tail and the down ears with the e-collar it's right there if you when you get comfortable with it you can have it in your pocket you can have it on the lanyard around your neck and it's easy and the dog understands it we put them through a, a, a program called collar conditioning and the dog understands that we're not upset we're not mad but that is how and how we're going to train you. You know, if you're not coming back, there is going to be a, I like to use the word aggravation. Pete might, uh, Mr. Pete might argue that, but I like it to just be an aggravation until you do what I asked you and then it stops. It goes away. We use the continuous button more than any button. I, I like the continuous button. And when I say here and you're out there getting birdie, but I already saw the, the wounded goose get up and get out of the field. And you're in that sit cone, and you won't come back, and we got more ducks, geese to work. And I'm saying here, but you're still, you're cracking that tail and hunting. You're really birdie. And I said, no, here, without that econ, that a good birdie dog might not come back. You might have to go out in the field. But with that econ, I give continuous pressure on a low setting where it's just an aggravation. Soon as he makes momentum to me, I let off. And that goes back to how we teach these dogs. And when I explain that to the owner um, of how that works, man, it's just so easy. Um, he doesn't have to holler. He's a more of a pleasure to be around in the blind. He's not upset. His buddies aren't upset with him. He's not breaking. When we're in those layout blinds, his dog's not getting in the muzzle blast. I mean, it. It's the easiest collar. There's a nick button on the 1900S. Going back to your question, there's a nick button, a continuous button, and a pager button. And um, it, the rear step is in the beginning um, is what sold me on this product and this brand. I mean, it's the easiest thing. I can go from one to 127. There's there's not a dog out there that this collar doesn't fit. Um, all of our competitors. You have to put it on a setting, and it goes from one to eight. And I mean, there's a lot of settings in between those settings, and we have we have collars that are from one to eight. And for different tasks and different training, um, that the the uh, edge RT. Um, that there's a lot of situations that I use that, but for the common duck hunter hunter. Um, 
uh, amateur that's going to train at home the 1900s with the rheostat and three buttons that that's one of the easiest collars to use out there and that, that's what we provide for all our customers coming and going and if you learn how to use it by somebody that knows somebody like mr pete or myself or somebody that can teach you how to use it and the dog has been collar conditioned there's not a better tool um, before I ask Pete about the remote, I want to start with the remote, Pete. But when Brad says the word aggravation, he made a comment. He didn't know whether or not you agreed with that. Is that something that you do agree with the, where it's I assume that it's just can be aggravating to the dog that you, when you're getting aggravated, you want to get away from that. So you learn to not, you know, spark that aggravation anymore is that what he's trying to say mr pete is like hey that just might be a tick that's aggravating the dog and it's not necessarily pain yeah it it's uh it's an un uncomfortable feeling <laughs> that that the dog has to what, what we say in the business has to uh figure out the out how to get out of that uncomfortable feeling of that static electricity which is how they work and um and and what this feels like on the dog's nerve endings and how they get out of that uncomfortable feeling by complying with a given command that that the handler has given them. And, you know, the best that that I can tell people that have never uh, touched a remote training collar. And I, and I believe everybody that ever uses one of these should should strap it on their wrist and, and feel it so they know what it feels like is it's static electricity. And the best thing that that's out there that would be similar to the sensation of a training collar is if you ever went for physical therapy or to a um, chiropractor and they put something on you called a TENS machine, it's it's very similar to that. It's the muscle stimulator is what it does. And um, and so, but we've, we've figured out how to remote control through radio signal from the transmitter to the receiver and the dog wears the receiver and we've figured out how to implement that static, that muscle stimulator via radio, long range radio signal so that we can reinforce commands. And so that's really how it works on the lower levels, as Brad was talking about on that 1900 S black edition, which is actually my favorite unit. Um, it, it's I like it because it's it's a great all round all round unit. We've got canine handlers using that unit. We've got amateur dog trainers that are out in, in the uh, duck blind using it. Um, Brad, uh, you're going to know the couple of guys that I just uh, sent a couple of these out to. Uh, you know who Bruce Curtis is. Um, Bruce yeah. trained yeah. some of the, yeah, Brett trained some of the dogs that you see running at the NRC and the National Amateur. Uh, most of those dogs have come through Bruce's program. Uh, he uses the 1900S Black. Uh, Dave Smith, who used to work, uh, was Mike Lardy's assistant. That's what he's using. So uh, my point is, is this is a great. The best of the best there are. Yeah. And and so that's a great all around caller. Brad uses it. Uh, Lee, I think uh, down at Mossy Pond uses it. But Lee kind of likes the RT unit, uh, which is uh, has a little bit bigger transmitter. I personally like the rheostat. Like Brad says, I like a smaller um, transmitter that I can drop in my waiter pouch in a pocket. Um, so it, it is a, a good all round product and uh, it's got plenty of range and and plenty of power for those dogs that have a high threshold. So to, to go back and answer your question, Chad, is, yeah, it's that uncomfortable feeling. It's that aggravation, let's call it, uh, that the dog feels through his nerve endings. 
And what we want to teach that dog is he can get fight, figure out the out, how to get out of that uncomfortable feeling by complying with the command. That's an, that's the use of the e-collar. And we're able to do it at a great distance, depending on just what we're doing with this particular dog. Okay. So we, we, we want the dog to understand that the training is taking place to give him or her the way to get out of that uncomfortable feeling. So we are deciding now as our sporting dog owner, or we're going to train our dog and you, there's a lot of different canines that are trained through e-collar methods. We'll start with this remote, Mr. Pete Fisher. And I want Brad to talk on it too. Um, when you get the remote for the 1900, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Pete Fisher, but you have a, you have an option with Dogtra of a one dog and a two dog system, correct? Or are they all 1900s two dog? Uh, it varies on a particular model. That particular unit, when we, when we have a unit that, uh, you can add a receiver to it, we call that expandable. That unit is not expandable. It's a single dog unit and it's a single dog all its life. You can buy the standard 1900S in either a single dog unit or a two dog unit, uh, that's called a 1902. We do make some units, and I think Brad, you guys use uh, and sell some of these down at the lodge. We have a unit called ARC, which has got a very slender receiver on it. That unit comes all packaged and ready to go. It's expandable. You buy it as a single dog unit, and at a later date, if you add a dog, Cheb, you just order another receiver, and we do what we call code it. it to the receiver, to the transmitter, and now you've got a two-dog system. But that unit we're talking about today is a single-dog unit, can never be expanded. We do not offer it in a two-dog version. Uh, it, it's it's one of our more popular units right now. Uh, it's got a little bit bigger. If you look at that compared to a standard 1900, you'll notice it's a little thicker. I don't know if you've seen that, Brad, but that unit actually has a bigger battery in the back uh, of the transmitter. That's why the transmitter has kind of a bulge to the back of it. What does that mean? Well, it gives us the opportunity to push the signal further. And the other thing it's going to do is it's going to give you better battery life in between charges. Okay. So when you start talking about this unit that we're talking about today is always going to be a lifelong single dog unit. What does, when you, before I get to the power button and setting the level, there's a pager button on some of the remotes what does a pager button do, Brad or Pete? Well, you, either one of you can take this. And is that mainly for a two-dog system if it's a pager? Because your pager one. What does pager mean when you when it comes to this remote system? Uh, the, the the way we use it as a as a trainer, um, there, there's several different things you can use it. Um, a lot of people think of the pager as a a warning or as um, a warning before I use the continuous pressure. And that's what, in my world, um, 90% of the people use it for. There are a lot of tricks that um, we have learned over the years that we have used it for. Uh, a lot of my duck hunters don't like blowing a whistle or in running water. The dog can't, the dog can't um, hear them. And a lot of people will use that pager as their whistle sit or as other, um, other ways of um, telling the dog to do different things. If, um, if, he, if he's um, loud in the blind, I know that pager, I use that a lot. If he's whining in the blind instead of a continuous pressure, um, I, I use that pager. Um, I've trained several dogs in the past. Instead of a whistle blow, they'll hit that page button, and that makes the dog turn and sit or, and sit and turn around for hand signals. But from what I've learned and what I've seen, 
over the years. 90% of it is if that dog's out there and we've asked him to do a command or we've told him right here to sit, the pager is basically telling him, look, um, we're not going to use the pressure if you'll, if you'll be a good boy, especially for older dogs, dogs that totally get the collar, understand what it is, but aren't complying, then we'll, we'll give you a little warning with the pager. But I have some, I have trained and done some pretty cool stuff with the pager in the past, but um, I'd love to hear what Mr. Pete says. Yeah, please, Pete, on the pager button. Sure. Well, the pager is really no different than uh, what you might have a pager vibration on your cell phone and you'd have it in your pocket and you can use it as an as a, as an alert, you know, that your phone is going off uh, without it ringing. And uh, I use it similar to what Brad might use it. Uh, if that dog's, uh, uh, let's say, in an upland hunting situation, he's getting a little far out. I might use the pager to start with just vibration a little bit saying, hey, you need to reel yourself back in. You're pushing gun range. And if he doesn't, I'm going to follow up with some static. Um, I might use it if that dog's in a layout blind and uh, he starts creeping out of that layout blind and I look over at him and, and I see the birds are coming and we're calling. And we, we're just at that point where we're about ready to click the safeties off and that dog starts rearing up. I might reach down and just vibrate him a little bit and I'll hiss at him. I'll go and vibrate him. If he doesn't respond, then I'm going to tap with the with the static. Here's one place where I've seen this used quite a bit. As I, I mentioned earlier, that particular unit is extremely popular with the canine uh, handlers uh, that use dogs for for uh, searching a building, let's say. And so they kick that dog off and put him in a building, and they're doing a, a search, and um, they want that dog back out of the building. They don't want to use any static on him for fear that he might vocalize, uh, in other words, yelp with the static. Uh, and then the bad guy that's in the building, now he knows where the dog is at. So if we teach him a silent recall with a pager vibration, that dog's in work in the building. They want to reel him back out for whatever reason. They've taught him to to uh, recall with that silent vibration. So that's another way I've seen it used a lot. It, incredible. Like this is what I referred to in the beginning of this podcast, Brad and Pete is, I mean, this is learning. Like this is so important for the handler to know that he could page when that dog's creeping, don't have to hit him statically, vibrate him a little bit, hiss, boom, you're right there. You don't have to, you don't have to reprimand him. You don't have to discipline him. You don't have to jump up out of your blind and make sure nobody shoots because the geese are back flapping and the dog's already out in front of the muzzle. I mean, this is just awesome education. So as we move on to the power button now, when you're holding the remote in your hand, you got a thumb, you could use whatever finger you want. Easy to put the power on. But then on the top of the remote, if everybody watching on YouTube and foullife.com, you can see the spindle up here on top. There's a knob up on top, a little nipple that is right next to the antenna. Explain to me this. I assume that this is just going to be the level that we choose to put the collar at. How important is it for the owner to understand the adjustability and the, the intensity of these levels? Pete, you go first, please. Uh, that knob that's up on top, we call it the stimulation volume knob, <clears throat> and it's actually a rheostat, and, and a rheostat control is like a volume knob on your radio. So that unit there that you're looking at has 0 to 127 levels of stimulation. So it gives you a, a wide variety, a lot of flexibility of stimulation because we have a wide variety of dog personalities. When I start using that particular unit, I, I start any dog once I've obedience trained him at a fairly low level. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm moving that, 
that stimulation knob back and forth all the while I'm collar conditioning that dog. And that's one of the, the greatest problems that I see with any remote training collar is that people seem to think that you're going to get the same reaction out of the dog every time you push that button. And Brad knows this and all the and other individuals that train dogs is that the only thing that's consistent with how a dog reacts is that it's inconsistent. Okay. And so that's the reason we put that knob right on top. So it's very easy to get at. So we can dial the stimulation up and down depending on the training environment. Because when you start introducing some distractions, you're going to need more stimulation than when you're training without distractions. I always tell people this. It's like trying to get your kid to take the garbage out when he's watching cartoons on TV, okay? T turn the TV off and now you got his attention. So distractions always mean that we're going to, with in most cases, need a higher level of stimulation to get the dog's attention, to get that uncomfortable feeling, that aggravation, as Brad mentioned earlier. So I start at a fairly low level, but something I want uh, everybody to, to hear is that the average dog and the average person does not react to the static stimulation until you get above level 20. Now, you take a dog that's hypersensitive to static, and they will react. They feel it. A lot of times people say, well, my dog's not reacting. And I'll say, he's not reacting, but believe me, he feels it. It's just every dog's threshold for static is different, just like a human being is. And then if you strap it to your wrist and you just keep tapping that button, leave it on the same level and keep moving your arm around and doing different things, you're going to find that your nerve endings have a different sensation almost every time you tap that button. That's where I said earlier, the only thing that's consistent is that it's inconsistent how your nerve endings react to this. So that's the reason we've got the, the knob right up on top, Chad. So it's so easy to get at. Then we implement the stimulation off of one of those other buttons, either Nick, which is a momentary less than quarter second uh, burst of stimulation, or constant, which is on with a 10 to 12 second breaker in case you would inadvertently push it, uh, sit on it in your pocket. Brad, following up with what Mr. Pete so well, well described just now, is there ever a reason to go above a certain level? I, I, I vividly remember that you told me level four, I believe. Vividly remember you saying Axel's going to be right around a four. Is that because that's where you knew he was going to be? I, I guess it would be a 40. I, I think they go in tens increments. But is that sound right, Brad? Or is there is there like a, an average? Or can a, the, can this, we have to go with what Pete said to where it, it's so inconsistent, you just have to play with it until you find out what that exact dog reacts to? Well, I think that, um, to explain what – Mr. Pete, in, in my terms, was talking about um, was depending on what they're doing, just like what he said. I'll refer back to his example, a kid watching TV, and you're asking him to go take the trash out. Well, Axel might be on a 65 on that. But now if it's just me and Axel in a backyard and there's no birds flying, I mean, it's just a sunny day, nothing's going on, no cars are driving by, he may be at a 30. So um, it, it just depends on that same dog, what, what's going on. I mean, if a hundred mallards are cupped up in a dry field, cornfield, cupped up, about to come down, and this dog's hunted for two seasons, and he knows that it's, it's on just like I know it's on, then, you know, if he breaks, you might have it on 65 or 70, as opposed to that single that's out there 
that you you come up and it's a 70 yard shot and you hit him way out there and the dog doesn't even think you're going to hit him you know and you wing him down you know that dog's probably not going to break if he breaks you might have to keep it on a 30 so but yes axel is around a 40 we have 120 dogs on the property right now at all times and every dog if i we have seven trainers and for i go to any trainer and i said what is axel's number we have the number on there for the reset for these collars about what they're going to be so axel would be a 40 to a 45 and in the way that we train and some trainers are different mr pete might not agree with this but i want zero vocalizing on my property no vocalizing on my property at all if they're vocalizing you're not training properly um, it is my philosophy and how I teach my guys. So now that doesn't mean that his neck won't be like this. You know, he, he's feeling it. But I want you to teach, teach, teach. And I just want that to be an aggravation to come back because healthcare comes number one on Multi Ponds property. And number two is attitude. And if we're out there burning them too hard and being above their level, like if I had Axel on 100, he can't handle 100. And if that dog trainer, if he was out there day in and day out correcting him on the task and the new task, every day they're getting something new thrown at him. Every day he's getting um, burned on 100, then he's going to lose attitude. And healthcare, then attitude. Attitude second priority on multi pond and if i lose attitude they're not my guys aren't doing their job properly so you got to have a good setting every dog has a different setting and you have to find what you get a response out of that dog when you use the static what i want a response i want to know that you're feeling it and you're 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 hearing me through the static but i don't want the dog vocalizing not 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 with what we do and um, when you find that that sweet spot is what I call it. That's the sweet spot. Every dog's got a different sweet spot. I got I got some dogs in there that it's crazy, but their sweet spot's a fifteen. And um, my trainer's like, "You sure they're gonna feel it?" You know, I'm like, "Yeah, fifteen is where he's at." And I, have, I do have some dogs in there, big, bulky, um, strong males that they're up around a seventy-five or eighty. And they still don't vocalize. Their feelings aren't hurt, but that's what it takes to get their attention. And to, and we're on the same page. He's coming back, that tail cracking, but he's also an obedient dog. And when I go to the foul life and we're filming a show, I know he's not going to break. He's not going to vocalize. I don't have to kick his butt and get him in trouble and um, look like I'm abusing him out there. He's not going to vocalize, but at the same time, he's going to be spot on and he's not going to break, and he's going to be a gentleman in the duck blind and make me look good, make my brand look good, and the guys that I work for and um, their, their brands on my on my back. Pete, do you have a comment to Brad's question on whether or not you agree with that? Could Brad have worked for you back in the day, Mr. Pete? Let's say that Brad just wanted to come up and work for somebody to get some training. Does his sediments – does his sediments ring true to your style? Oh gosh, yes. You know, I don't know if I could afford him in this day and age. You know, with with, uh, with his level of expertise. But no, I, you got to realize I sent my dog Trey down to Brad, and he had him for about six months, and and uh, just to confirm what we talked about, 
Uh, Trey is uh, is a medium level dog. He's very resilient in training. Got a high level, uh, high drive level. But um, Brad had him down south for six months, <clears throat> training him, uh, getting him ready for some derby work, and eventually he became a master hunter uh, when I got him back here. And and uh, I'll I'll be honest with you, the day that uh, I got him back uh, after six months. His attitude looked no different than the day I shipped him off, Chad, and that's what I wanted. Um, I wanted a dog that wasn't going to be in, in the business. We call him ground. I didn't want a dog that was ground and tail between the legs and just going through the motions. I wanted a dog with style, wanted him to perform, but uh, I didn't want a dog that was uh, looked like a whoop dog when I got him back. And uh, uh, he hopped out of a – we found a guy uh, – I think the guy's name was Tom Bentley, if I recall, Chad, that was coming up this way and bringing some setters up. And he was an old client of yours. And uh, he brought Trey back up and I met him down around Rochester and hadn't seen Trey in six months. And he came out of the back of this guy's truck and jumped off the tailgate and never even really looked at me like he, he hadn't seen me in six months, but he could have cared less and wagged his tail and relieved himself. And he jumped back up on the tailgate and then he realized it was me and and uh, everything was great. But that's what we want to see in our dogs, just what what uh, what Brad described. And and we want to use enough stimulation, as we said earlier, you know, not to beat this to death. But that's really one of the in, important things about using the remote training college, what we started out with, how powerful this unit is and how little effort it takes uh, to implement the stimulation. Uh, it just just my finger. So uh, it. it you can get overzealous trainers, uh, but, you know, you can get that with, with somebody that is a non-e-collar uh, trainer also. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that people are disciplining dogs and overdoing it, not necessarily even uh, e-collar trainers. So we want to find how we make that dog uncomfortable, how he complies with those commands. And and one of the things, and Brad's going to agree with this, that the biggest reason that we use the, the remote training collar is what he said earlier is that we don't physically have to reinforce or punish this dog manually. And the other thing is, is how do you do it with what we ask these dogs to do nowadays and the distances? Timing is so crucial when we reinforce a command. Timing is so crucial. How in the world am I going to reinforce a command uh, on a dog that refuses a cast 150 yards from me? If I don't have a remote training collar and a dog that has been conditioned to it, that's why we see the, the the dogs are just so superior nowadays, Chad. And Brad is, I know Brad's going to agree with this. Uh, he's not quite old enough, but my gosh, if if uh, you look back into the 60s and 70s and the 80s, those retrievers that were performing in, in field trials back then, they couldn't hold a candle to the dogs that we're, we're producing today. Why? Because of the advancements in our training product and in our methods. And so we're seeing that not only in ribbon runners, Chad, but we're also seeing that out in the duck blinds and out in the pheasant fields, dogs that are just under much more control and much more pleasure to have around. Wow. I'm, all I can keep thinking about is like, man, I just love, I, I already said I love to learn, but I just love the enthusiasm of, of what it means. But we just like got started. And when you work with busy people like Brad Arrington and Pete Fisher, you are sometimes at their mercy. So I know that Pete has a full day of training and filming videos. I know that Brad has a full, full day of getting ready for hunting season at Mossy Pond Outfitters. I was already committed to one hour. It's hard for me to cut off at one hour, but hey, I respect these guys' schedules. But that means we're going to have part two because we just started on the remote. We still have to get to the buttons on the side 
There's two different buttons on the side that we're going to get to that I want these gentlemen's expertise on because it's very important to understand Nick and Constant and everything that goes in to what you're going to deliver to that dog through your remote e-collar from Dogtra, the 1900S Black Edition. We also have to get into this. I don't know, Brad. I don't know, Pete. How tight do I put it on? What do I want? Can I slip a finger through there? Where do I want the nodules to be touching? If it gets turned when he's swimming or gets caught, what do I do? Like, there's so many questions in my mind going into putting this on my dog. When do I put it on? Do I put it on when we get in the truck, before I let him out, when we're setting up decoys so he doesn't run in front of a four-wheeler? Once it goes on, I want to talk about conditioning and the other pieces of vocabulary that go into understanding what it means once this collar goes on and what that dog's going to be expected to do and pay attention because I have been in Kansas where dogs have been running around where four wheelers are driving back and forth and trucks are pulling in and out of the field. It's dark. It's four in the morning. We don't know what's going on. Does the caller go on or do we leave him in the kennel the whole time? So many questions, guys. Brad Arrington, Mossy Pond Retrievers, Pete Fisher, the Dog Tra Company. We talked about the 1900S Black Edition today. It's my favorite caller because I'm learning with you guys, the listening audience, with you ladies, the listening audience. Pete and Brad, they already said it was their favorite caller. We're going to break it down even more on part two with Pete Fisher and Brad Arrington right here at the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one. I can't wait for part two. I'm excited for it. We will let you know when it's getting ready to release right here on all of your podcast listening platforms. Thank you, Gerber. Thank you, Dogtra. Tom, Jake, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. (laughs) 